All right, good afternoon. Uh, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, excited to have you here. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Lloyd Wamsley. I run the internet research practice here at Deutsche Bank. Uh, we are ecstatic to have uh, John Zimmer, the co-founder and president of Lyft with us tonight. Uh, it's his first, I think, presentation uh, as a public company to the investment community. So uh, we're very excited about that. Uh, thank you for being here. Sure. Um, I'll kick it off uh, with just a kind of a high-level question on, on background and philosophy. Can, can you just talk a little bit about how your background from the Cornell School of Hospitality shaped the founding and kind of your vision for Lyft? Sure. Uh, so, hi, everyone. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I, I studied hospitality, and I started thinking through in my senior year, how could you apply hospitality to non-obvious industries? So instead of uh, necessarily going into a hotel or restaurant business, um, I took a city planning class, and I started seeing the city itself as the most important hospitality experience where the majority of the, the global population is now living in cities. And then I realized that transportation within cities uh, was the biggest determinant of how we were building U.S. cities. Um, so U.S. cities have been primarily shaped around the automobile. And, and then uh, I had this amazing professor, and he zoomed out in a lecture on the history of transportation from canals to railroads to highways. And I started thinking, what would be that next big infrastructure change that would happen in our cities? Um, and applying the principles of hospitality, I thought about our existing roads and vehicles and seats and, and thought about occupancy and cost and service. And the occupancy of our, or the utilization of our automobiles is incredibly low. Uh, the cost is incredibly high. And the service alternatives are not great. And so that to me was kind of the hospitality transportation experience was to increase occupancy the average American household spends $9,000 every year owning and operating a car, a car which they use 4% of the time. If you think about seats, it's, it's about 1% utilization. Um, and uh, that's the big opportunity. That's what got me so excited. Uh, and that's what we've been building for uh, now, Logan and I, over a decade, seven years of which Lyft has been around. So the nirvana end state is really people giving up car ownership. So. You know, what do you see as the key hurdles to, to seeing more households either go down from two to one car or give up a car? Um, what can you all do to accelerate this, and how does that uh, inform your strategy? Yeah, so it is primarily, I think for most American households, a cost consideration, and then there is the need to change behavior. I am optimistic about behaving, uh, changing behavior because when we started, everyone said, no way anyone's going to ride in a car with a stranger. Um, let alone a car with a pink mustache on it. Um, and I think, you know, a few billion rides later, we've proven that, that that can happen. I think that the next big behavior change is obviously uh, replacing the use of their car completely. Um, and I think for some people that happens incrementally, um, but uh, the, the, again, the primary driver is going to be uh, cost and then followed by uh, convenience. And so now you can get a, a lift in most uh, or in all major U.S. cities um, under, with about a three-minute pickup time on average. Um, and we have various price points. So we have the black car, a premium below back, uh, black car. We have a classic ride, and we have a shared ride. And we're starting to actually add additional levels of service in that classic service and the shared ride. Uh, when we ask if you're willing to wait, we can actually lower the price even more. The next step... You know, obviously, we're adding other modes, bikes and scooters, 
um, transit into the app, um, and, uh, and even consumer rental cars. To, to address every single use case you would have for either that second car or that, that one car if you're kind of uh, a, a single person living in a city. Then what you do is you package that as a membership um, and you make it really easy for people to see the trade-off economically between car ownership and transportation as a service. Uh, and that's when uh, you know, we believe this, um, this full transportation as a service market will continue to, will actually accelerate in growth uh, as you make that economic trade-off more and more real and more and more apparent. As, as someone who's dropped from a two-car family to one car and, and uses uh, your products and others frequently, um, it does, the, the, some of the things you're testing on car rental do strike me as, as really helping bridge that, that change. How far are we from kind of you expanding that test, and what are some of the early learnings you've seen in your test of the rental, adding the rental car option? So we, we actually started rental cars on the driver side of the equation. So realizing that you know, last year we had nearly 2 million drivers give at least uh, one ride on the Lyft platform, uh, and many people looking for work opportunities but not having access to a new vehicle, we saw that as, a, as the first opportunity. Um, and then we obviously realized that, that our customers would also want that. So we're building the competency. Um, we've done, you know, obviously several thousand vehicles on the driver's side. We're very early on the, on the passenger side. Um, what we've learned is that uh, the power of giving someone a lift ride tied to uh, where their rental car location is, um, is, is a really interest, uh, people really like that. Um, and we're able to deliver a, a much better level of service than existing options. Um, but, it, but it's very early. Um, you know, the MPS scores that we see are off the charts compared to existing rental programs. Um, and then the question is, how, how, how do we scale that? Great. Well, I can't wait. Yeah. Um, so wanted to shift gears towards, you know, competition and, and the market seeming to become a lot more rational in the U.S. You know, we see in contribution margins, the, the contra revenue driver incentives, the rider incentives in sales and marketing all seem to be showing a quick improvement in the competitive market. So can you kind of give us an update on how things are evolving here and then uh, where you see the company and investor focus migrating as we continue to show that rationality in the numbers? Yeah, I think we're, I think the, the good news is that the public markets have forced uh, rational behavior even more quickly than I think both companies uh, had predicted, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, our sales and marketing uh, from about a year ago was, uh, I believe, around 35%, now down to around 19% of revenue, um, which is obviously uh, significant leverage, and, th and there's more opportunity there. Um, in the early days, so again, Lyft is about seven years old, the first three, four years was people saying we wouldn't survive and that it was a winner-take-all market. Uh, we had a, a, uh, Uber had 30 to 1 capital advantage over us, uh, and we had single-digit or teen, low-teens market share. And so that, that first stage was getting to scale where we, we could offer minimally parity on the three-minute ETA so that then we could win on, on better overall service. <clears throat> In that period, we had both, I'd say, a lot less rationality from Uber's uh, previous leadership and, uh, and actually an advantage from our position on being able to spend $1 or $2 for every uh, you know, $8 that Uber would have to spend given the market disparity. Once we've built up that three-minute ETA, think of that like our CapEx, um, then it doesn't make sense 
now that we have a three-minute ETA, we can offer that service to you. Um, we don't need to, nor should we, uh, spend to just grow the scale. We should spend much more intelligently on driving the right behaviors um, of each individual rider. And so that's where we are now. It appears that the, the competition also believes that's a good idea. But whether or not they go back to kind of a, a more coupon strong strategy, we will not. Um, because to us, that was that CapEx period, just like a, um, uh, a cell phone company would build up their cell towers, we built up our, our scale. We're now in a period where competition will be uh, won by having better products, better engineering, uh, and better customer service. So, you know, it, you're now a public company. We, we can see the, the numbers obviously look like you're showing tons of progress, but um, if, you, if you look beyond sort of the obvious stuff, how has it changed competing, you know, with the, the new regime at, at, at Uber versus kind of the old regime? Are there, there are other things that, that are just, that have changed in, in kind of how they operate that help, help the space that are less obvious? I mean, I'm, yeah, so on the first, on the obvious side, I think that um, the, the rationality is good for the entire industry. Um, it makes sense for uh, them, it makes sense for us, um, and it is, I'd say, healthy all around. Um, I obviously have a bias, but I, I do think that the fact that we have uh, 12 years in transportation, 12 years working with my co-founder, um, seven years uh, of doing that as, with Lyft as the product, uh, gives us a significant advantage. And our focus, um, it gives us an advantage on our ability to recruit, it gives us an advantage on our, our understanding of the market, and we are focused on something for over a decade of building transportation as a service. And you're, you're seeing that, and that was pre-Uber's current leadership, but you're seeing kind of them do lots of things. Um, um, where we are very focused on transportation, uh, you know, personal transportation, not food, um, not delivery, not logistics. And <clears throat> I think more and more it will become apparent how, how powerful that is um, in, in giving our customers what they want within transportation. For example, um, consumer rentals that we mentioned, obviously it's very early and, and very small now, um, but that is something that makes sense within someone's transportation spend. Um, having exclusivity on bikes, we purchased the company that, that owns City Bike uh, in New York, and so when we launch memberships and you want a rental car on the weekend and bikes uh, when you're in New York City or if you live in New York City, uh, you can get it all on our membership. And so again, with that focus uh, and that, those years of experience, um, we'll be able to better deliver for our customers. And if our customers, for some reason, want to tie their transportation spend to their food spend, we could have a partnership with someone else in the food space uh, who has even larger market share than Uber. So, uh, you know, on profitability versus growth, kind of how do you think about balancing that strategically, and what do you see <coughs> as the biggest drivers to getting, you know, the business towards profitability and profitable, more profitable over time? Yeah, so I think... Um, it is a balancing act. Obviously, um, the, you know, as, as a one-segment company, um, you, know, you, you can't see what, what happens with the, the core ride-sharing, um, but we feel very confident uh, in, in where that's going. We've put up what we would call two, two good quarters um, and are excited to continue to put numbers on the board. 
uh, to prove that trajectory out. Um, we, you know, our history has also demonstrated we have not overextended ourselves. I think that was by necessity in the early days when we had a lot less money, uh, but it has made us extremely disciplined um, with the bets that we do make. So, you know, we are spending money uh, to scale up uh, bikes and scooters, but we are doing it in a very thoughtful way. We've limited the number of markets that we've launched scooters in. Uh, we've invested heavily in the markets uh, that we have, you know, bike exclusivity in, um, and we haven't overextended ourselves. We haven't, you know, rushed to do international beyond Canada uh, in a big way, um, and those are all very thoughtful decisions. We do need to play in the bike and, and kind of small mobility space. We do need to play in the AV space, um, but we're, we're, we're open to having partnerships as well, uh, and I think that's something that we've done really well. And, and, you know, which is a great segue, you know, you've been talking increasingly about some of your big strategic partnerships with, you know, non-emergency healthcare, trans, transport, you know, corporate partners, folks like Disney, um, and more industry-based rides in the pipeline. Like, how meaningful can that be in your ride mix over time? And then what, what does the revenue per ride or overall profitability look like for these ride types versus just the core consumer use case? Yeah, so I think one way to understand it is look at a specific use case like an airport trip that many um, uh, enterprise clients use Lyft for or the exclusivity that we have with Delta. So if you have Delta Sky Miles, uh, you can earn uh, when you take Lyft. That is, a <clears throat> that is one of the largest and in some markets the largest use case for Lyft and definitely kind of a lot of the, the oftentimes the first way someone tries Lyft. Oh, I need a ride to the airport. Um, and, and so it's like double digit as a percent of revenue that this airport business can be or is, um, and uh, those partnerships really drive that. Uh, another example would be non-emergency medical transportation. Uh, we believe that, um, that that business opportunity is over $20 billion in size where there's transportation spend currently happening. So Medicare, Medicaid patients are getting reimbursed for taxis uh, and other modes of transportation all across the country to get to their appointment. Um, one of the main reasons people do not get good medical care is because they do not get to their appointment. The difference of getting to your appointment and not could be a $10,000 medical procedure. More and more uh, insurance companies and these uh, Medicare, Medicaid providers are willing to pay for transportation to prevent a worse health outcome. And so that's a massive opportunity, and our enterprise team did, did a phenomenal job uh, starting a couple years ago to build out exclusive relationships with, the, uh, with all the largest uh, non-emergency medical transportation brokers. Uh, so I feel like we've, we've developed a really good footing there. Our brand uh, values have really mattered when people choose one or the other. Uh, our customer service has really mattered uh, for winning those deals. Disney is another example from a brand perspective uh, where uh, they obviously they chose to work with us. We're going to have exclusive pickup and drop-off um, areas uh, at, at Disney World, and that's that's a, a great way to uh, you know build the brand by adding like passenger value where it's easier to get picked up and dropped off. And, and what is what is kind of unit economics of <coughs> this segment or, or elasticity look like versus maybe just the traditional consumer side of the business? Um, I don't believe I can get specific on the on those numbers from a reporting perspective, um, but in these exclusive relationships. 
uh, where, you know, for example, non-emergency medical transportation, their alternative historically was ordering taxis that sometimes did or didn't get um, delivered, there's opportunity for us to have a booking fee that is above our, our standard uh, take. Great, okay. Uh, you know, you've started to talk more and more about uh, loyalty <coughs> and developing a stickier relationship with customers. Maybe you can talk about uh, your vision there, some of your tests uh, on loyalty and how we should be thinking about that. Sure, so the, the vision is that uh, we, may, we, we build upon our relationship with the customer to make it really easy for you to always choose Lyft. Um, you know, examples of that are uh, Amazon Prime um, and maybe the, the Costco kind of uh, club model where you pay a certain membership price and then you know that the company uh, goes and works on the best possible, in our case, transportation uh, for all of your needs. Uh, we are not interested in kind of the, the miles type loyalty program because we, we feel like that is a less direct or transparent uh, relationship with, with the customer where it's kind of gamifying uh, and has all these, you know, dark times when it doesn't work or, you know, rules when it does work. It's much more clear to, to have a program where uh, things that we're testing now where you pay, um, let's say, $15 a month and you get 10 to 15% off, off your rides uh, and maybe you'd get access to a few bike trips and things like that. That is our belief on the best way in. We're also testing kind of an all-you-can-ride uh, plan uh, for, for a few hundred dollars, which someone could compare to car ownership where they, they spend $9,000 a year when you include your, your lease and, and your fuel and, and insurance. So as we think about kind of the evolution of, of users and ride frequency, how do you guys think about user adoption? Kind of where are we on the adoption curve? Is it still, is it still early in your mind? Uh, yeah, we believe it's, it's very early. Um, when we think about, when we look at our, our user metrics, we look at uh, revenue per uh, active passenger, and we look at our total active passengers. The combination of those two items then leads to revenue growth, uh, which uh, from our last quarter reported, uh, we had 72% year-over-year revenue growth. Um, so we're still, we're still growing, uh, you know, very strongly. Um, and at the same time, we're adding additional products to help make this broader transportation as a service shift uh, more obvious to the customer. Examples of the products that we're adding, even within ride hailing, you know, putting bikes and transit to the side, uh, is that we have, you know, our premium rides with black car and then uh, a slightly lower level. We have our classic ride. We're, we're testing a service where you actually wait a few minutes uh, to get your standard ride. Uh, it allows us to better uh, manage the marketplace. We have shared rides, and then we have shared saver, which is an even more affordable shared ride service um, that asks you to wait or walk. And so what we're finding is that there's a, there's a pretty large revenue management. And back in the hotel industry, you think about selling the right room to the right person at the right time. Uh, and in our industry, it's the same, but it's in real time. It's the right, you know, right place at the right time. And so we're getting really good at doing that. Um, and I think that will drive down the economics for those that, that want to use transportation more, and then we package it as a, uh, as a membership, and, and more and more people will go from having their few use cases to many use cases. Another broad way of looking at it, if you look across the United States, uh, Lyft and Uber combined do probably one or two percent of all miles traveled. So there is, as we're able to make it more obvious that it is uh, a financially irrational decision to own a car in major urban environments where two-thirds of miles happen, uh, there is a lot of upside.
So you re-architected your tech platform. You rolled out this new matching platform in the first quarter. Can, can you talk about how important this is in terms of launching new modes, unlocking new users, and just optimizing driver <coughs> utilization? Yes. Um, so some of the modes that I just mentioned, shared saver where you wait and walk, or even the, the classic ride where it's a personal ride, but if you wait 10 minutes because we'll be able to uh, manage supply and demand, uh, that will give you a savings. That's all based on this new infrastructure that is incredibly flexible. Uh, the other thing that's really important about kind of the way that we've built our technology is that there, there is a lot of efficiency still left in the marketplace, um, which means uh, money that can be brought to the bottom line for profitability or been given to the, the passenger to drive more demand or the driver uh, to drive more supply depending on each route. So for example, uh, the technology we now use for pricing, where we used to uh, raise or lower prices in a market across the entire market on a minutes and miles perspective, we can now do it on a route perspective. So there would be thousands of routes in, in any given city. And each route has a different uh, supply and demand curve um, at a different time of day. And, and by getting that nuance, uh, you can find uh, surplus where you can uh, increase um, price without impacting demand uh, materially. Um, and then you could uh, take that surplus to the bottom line, and then in areas where it would be detrimental, you don't, you don't make that change, but overall, uh, you're able to increase prices. So, you know, on the utilization side in our, our launch report, we did some work that backed into a 4% uh, utilization estimate of a driver in terms of like idle time versus working with a passenger in the car, how much of an opportunity do you see in getting driver time, you know, more on a, on a meter? You know, are we talking a few percentage points, 10 percentage points, like how much room is there and what, what could this do to unit economics? More than a few points. It's, it's significant. And just to, to help you believe me on that, um, think about, the, the way that we're doing this service where you could request a ride, um, but instead of having it instantaneous and you're willing to wait because you can save a little bit of money, what that, that allows us to start queuing up passengers for drivers. And then we can manage exactly where the driver is uh, with this kind of queued up, um, digitally queued up uh, line, of, line of passengers. So, so we believe, and we've seen markets. I mean, we obviously have a range. You know, I'm not gonna comment on your specific metric, but we have a range of markets that have kind of a medium level of utilization to a high level of utilization. And if you just take the factors that are true in those areas of high levels of utilization, which can be higher than what you mentioned, um, there, is, there is significant room to go, um, which means significant economics to unlock for the three audiences of ourselves, customers, and drivers. So shifting to the autonomous uh, you know, opportunity here, can you, can you talk a little bit about your strategy and what some of the key barriers are to scaling autonomous cars uh, and, and maybe kind of what might accelerate or delay that over, you know, thinking about your kind of mid and long-term goals you laid out in the S1? Yeah, so one important point uh, is that we strongly believe autonomous vehicles will first roll out on a rideshare network. Now, obviously, again, I have a self-interest in saying that, but let me explain why I, I strongly believe that that is the case. The time between 
now and when a major automaker um, is, you're going to be able to go to a dealer and buy a fully autonomous vehicle is many, many, many years from now. Let's just call it a decade plus. So that, that vehicle, would I, maybe even a better way of saying it, at what point can you go to a dealership and buy a car with no steering wheel? That is a, like a decade plus because it has to do everything, every airport, every bridge and tunnel, every weather condition, all of those things. That is really, really, really challenging every parking lot, every, you know, that is a really challenging technical challenge. The, if the question is, which we believe it to be, at what point can you have a car without a steering wheel that does 20% of the rides on a rideshare network, that is a lot sooner. And so one analogy is you go from 4G to 5G. There's still going to be a lot of calls and services done on 4G. Um, 5G being autonomous, 4G being human-driven. So that's how I believe this is going to play out. I think the counterintuitive reason we went autonomous is because we have drivers. Um, so because we have a driver community, <clears throat> that can do for a very long time the far majority of our rides, um, we'll be able to provide the customer with all of their needs, of which AV will be a portion. And over the time, that 20% of rides that an autonomous vehicle can do will increase to 30 to 40 to 50 to 60%. Um, and, you know, we'll be able to manage uh, the different portions of our, of our market. Um, so the, the other way we think about AV and kind of our advantages are we can invest in parts of our business like fleet management, like vehicle services. So even just think about the rental cars. That makes a lot of sense for our drivers and riders today. And the skills that we're developing there make a lot of sense for managing millions of AVs. And we're going to have these capabilities that others won't have. And in order to win autonomous, not only will you need to have almost like, be able to serve 100% of a customer's trip, you're also going to need to be able to maximize revenue per available mile, which you will not be able to do if you don't understand fleet management. Yep. okay. Um, you know, shifting gears a little bit, you know, how would you describe your relationship with drivers, you know, and how does your corporate culture and strategy perhaps set you apart from competition here? Um, you know, what are, what are some of the key differentiators in terms of, like, the benefits you provide uh, drivers? And is, is there a metric you guys track? Is it driver retention that, you know, underscores driver relations? The best metric is driver preference, um, of which we have consistently um, been higher than our competition. Um, but it starts at, like, I think this hospitality principle, if, you know, we're fortunate to have nearly 2 million drivers that are using our platform uh, to earn a living, we need to understand uh, what it's like to be a driver. So every year I drive, um, and we have various team members, those that are most close to the driver experience, uh, that, that do drive to make sure they understand the experience. That's step one. We need to know who we're serving. Step two is then we need to listen to our drivers beyond our own experiences, because we don't have a lot of time to be driving. Um, so we built out a driver advisory council uh, and scaled that across the country. So we're getting the right amount of feedback from driver representatives. And then we're actually implementing uh, programs that our drivers care about. <clears throat> so the most important thing to drivers is their earnings. Um, and there, there's additional components 
uh, beyond that that matter. Ex examples that impact earnings uh, are, you know, we were the only for a long time company to have FIPS. Um, of course, Uber followed several years later, um, but that's one of probably 50 or 100 different features that we've built that either have taken them too long to add or they don't just have. Another example of something we have now is we offer drivers uh, a no-fee uh, debit card that's attached to a, a free bank account that they can get uh, with us. Um, and, and how that works is that the second uh, a driver using this, it's called Lyft Direct, the second a driver ends a ride, that money is in their uh, Lyft Direct bank account. And that is really powerful and important to drivers that they have, they can literally say, I need to make a payment on rent or I'm saving up for my wedding or whatever. Um, they can go out, do the work, and it's in their bank account. Uh, the reason we know that to be powerful is because we were also the first to do a service called Express Pay, where uh, historically, in most industries, you get paid weekly or biweekly. And several years ago, we, we created the ability for them to tap a button. There was a 50 cent, which is, was our cost, uh, 50 cent uh, transaction fee, and it would go into their account. We thought it would be, you know, we'd be happy if 20% of people would use this once in a while. 70% of payouts are happening through that service, meaning that this is obviously incredibly important money that individuals want to have at their fingertips. So something like Lyft Direct is very in tune with what our drivers want, um, and you only kind of get there if you're, if you're listening. So those are just some examples. I think the rental car program is another example of us kind of uh, uh, addressing drivers' needs in a way different than our competition. So, you know, hot topic of uh, the last several weeks, certainly in the investment community, has been, you know, the, the California AB5 and concern around, you know, what that means in California, how that may expand beyond California federally or state by state. What, what can you say at this point about kind of the state of, of the regulatory overhang and rideshare industry overall and, and AB5 specifically? So first to zoom out, like there's been regulatory uh, questions or challenges or, and we've turned them into opportunities. That's been kind of our business. So from my, from my perspective, this is, this is the first one that I think the public markets are experiencing with us. Um, but if, if you look back at our history, you know, when we launched uh, a month in, we had several cease and desist um, because we were trying to create a new category of transportation. Um, you know, at, at one point we had to like, uh, uh, leave Austin and then come back when we got a state regulation. Um, I'm not making that as a parallel. We have no plans to leave a market uh, anymore. But th there's like, in building such a, n a new form of transportation and now having two million workers on the platform that use it in so many different ways, um, we, we also have to confront kind of regulatory change and make regulatory change. Um, the, the example of what we did in the TN, creating the TNC category is a pretty good parallel for what needs to happen in labor law. So in the TNC situation, there were four higher um, you know, limos and, and taxi services, um, but you were not allowed to use your personal vehicle. Um, and so we created a category in between what they had before, and we made sure that it uh, checked all the right boxes in terms of public safety with criminal background checks, driving record checks, and then we manuscripted a new personal, uh, a new insurance policy that had to sit between your kind of more commercial and, and personal use. 
Um, the same needs to happen with labor law, <coughs> where right now independent contractors, um, the way labor law is written, if you want to provide benefits to a small portion of your drivers, you then turn all your drivers uh, into employees, um, which isn't the best thing for society. Um, uh, because if you flip all the way to employees, you only get a certain type of worker, and in our case, 91% of our drivers drive less than 20 hours, 76% of our drivers drive less than 10 hours, and so uh, going full-fledged employee mode, while there be like pros and cons for us, the con being uh, you know, uh, additional costs for a certain subset of, of, of workers, the pro being you'd have different amounts of control where you could ask drivers to work specific shifts at specific times, so in, in some ways it would be easier to manage um, the, the marketplace, um, but then you would hurt the, the majority of the drivers that are doing this on a more supplemental income basis and don't want to work shifts. So the, the negotiations that are, gonna, that are continuing to take place, AB5 will pass. Uh, the question is, will there be a modification over the next six to 12 months um, to address kind of a way you could have a, a more full spectrum of workers? And I think because it is, uh, two, two reasons, because it is a, a logical solution, which doesn't always prevail, uh, but because it is logical and because the other interests in labor uh, don't automatically get any, anything when AB5 passes, meaning uh, this workforce um, is, is mostly transient and therefore difficult to organize. Um, that's why they're at the table wanting to figure out, hey, let's find a different path forward. So that said, there, you know, there's, there's three scenarios. Scenario one uh, is that between now and the next six months, January 1st, uh, we, we have a solution that we've worked out uh, with all the parties. Um, scenario two is we go to ballot in November uh, and we have early polling that is very positive for what we're trying to create. Uh, and step three with that, uh, if we did not succeed with the ballot initiative, um, then uh, drivers in California would become employees to which there are clear pros and cons. So walk us through, I guess, some of the pros and cons if, if, if we get to step three and then... Yeah. You know, I guess, so it sounds like you feel pretty good that the next six to 12 months we'll get a, a much better picture of how this will shake out. Yep. And, yep. and then in the scenario, which I think is the minority case, that it goes uh, the other way, uh, the, the pros would be you would manage a smaller population of workers, so you'd have less onboarding costs, less background costs, um, and uh, you would you'd be able to have more control over the hours and the duration that someone works with you. Where now I can come on the platform, work for a month, and never come back, but you already you paid for my background check and you paid all these onboarding costs. Um, so those are some of the pros. The cons are that you have the rigidity of an employment model um, where uh, it's helpful for our marketplace to have more flexibility on the hours people drive and the time of day and the size of the workforce given how fast we're growing. Okay, well, uh, shifting, shifting out of the regulation area to international expansion, you know, right now, focus is U.S. and Canada. How do you think about the eventual potential expansion internationally? You know, do you, do you need to expand internationally into other things like food to get to your long-term model, or is there enough room in, in U.S. rideshare? We feel there's enough room in U.S. rideshare slash trans transportation as a service, what I'd call it. Um, 
and would much rather invest there than go into any other vertical like food. International, the, you know, obviously we've, we've expanded to Canada. What that's done for us is it's allowed us to internationalize our products. So whether it's language or currency, we're setting the stage to be able to have to, to more easily go to additional markets. Um, we have not made a, a, a final decision uh, on, on when and how we will do that. Um, I'd, I'd think of that as a call option. Uh, we don't need to do that um, to have a massive business here uh, doing uh, U.S. and Canada transportation as a service. If you think about uh, how much is spent on transportation, Americans spend more money on transportation than they do on food. Uh, Americans only spend more money on their house than they do on tra you know, transportation is the second highest household expense. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and if you think of, you have AT&T and Verizon, which often I use as an analogy, um, they have three bars of coverage, we have three minute ETAs, um, there's two major players in the market. Um, th those companies, uh, I think, are worth about $200 billion with about 10% of the type of spend that you see in transportation. Um, so there's a, there's a very meaty opportunity here, and staying focused has really paid off for us and something that we're, we're going to be pretty careful about. Okay, so, so looking at kind of bikes and scooters, you know, how big can that be? within your business mix longer term? And then, you know, as you look at perhaps some of the markets you've been in the longest with bikes and scooters, you know, does that give you a better sense of kind of cohort behavior and where that can get to? You know, and I guess a follow-up around this would be, you know, what about shared rides and where that can get to over time as a mode? Yeah, so first with bikes and scooters, uh, really excited about the acquisition we made of Motivate. Motivate was the underlying company uh, underneath City Bike in New York, uh, what is now known as Blue Bike in Boston, uh, Divi in Chicago. Um, and some of those contracts, particularly New York and Chicago, are exclusive contracts. Um, and that's really powerful in a, in a world where you have a Lyft membership and you want access to this exclusive content. If you're living in New York, you sign up for $15 a month, you get 10 to 15% off, uh, and you get you know, three, uh, three rides on City Bike. You know, why would you sign up for another service if you're trying to get all your transportation spend in one place? Um, and you can't get that on another service. Um, City Bike is the, we've only owned the, the company uh, for this calendar year, um, but uh, they have been around, it's the most established bike share network in the US. Um, we had just announced publicly, uh, I believe they hit over 90,000 rides in a single day. That gives you a sense of scale. Um, when we acquired the business, uh, they were uh, at or close to break even uh, in that specific market. Um, since then, we've decided to expand it with the partnership with, with the city uh, to multiple boroughs. Um, but we, we know how to make, based on Motivate's operating history, we know how to make that work. We're also being careful uh, with kind of new models like scooters. We do think there is uh, something there, uh, but we haven't gone as wide with, with this new product as kind of the single scooter operators because the economics are not uh, where they need to be. So, you know, it's, it's been a, a rocky initial road in the, in, the, in the public markets. What would you say are some of the most important attributes of the business or sustainable advantages to your business uh, that, that, you know, the investment community isn't, isn't getting today? 
Well, I mean, look at the fundamentals of the, the, the quarters that we've demonstrated. Look at things like our sales and marketing uh, uh, and, and the losses that, and you know, how they're trending. Um, think about your own usage of transportation as a service and ride sharing and, and, and what your friends are doing. Uh, that is not decreasing, um, that, is, that is increasing. Um, and understand the various modes that we're building out and how that ties to membership and offers a, a single reason, uh, a single place where you can get all your transportation that will begin to eat away at that $9,000 annual spend. So, you know, the, the, the story, the execution here has been uh, very cool to watch. You know, as you think about the future of transportation, you know, over the you know, decade, multi-decade period, like what gets you most excited? What gets me most excited is that, you know, this, we've been saying this thing that I think more people thought was crazy when we said it 10 years ago, uh, but is now tangible, which is that instead of throwing you your keys for your 16th birthday, we can throw you Lyft membership. Um, and that is within striking distance. It is not there today. So if you don't think, like, you don't see it or feel it yet, because it's not there yet. Um, but we have, you know, the kernel of the rental business. We have the kernel of the bike and scooter. We have transit now in the app. We have shared rides at a price point where the economics work for us and where it's an incredibly exciting proposition for, for customers. Uh, we have uh, regular rides and premium rides. We have the entire suite uh, of things that we need. Uh, now we need to get portions of them to scale. We need to package it all up. But like, um, I'm really excited about the team's execution, where our infrastructure is, and the ability to make that, you know, keys become Lyft membership in the next uh, one to two years. Wow, next one to two years. Well, that's something to be excited about as a consumer. So looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much for being here. It's been fantastic to learn more about Lyft and, uh, and look forward to watching you guys uh, on your journey ahead. Thank, thank you. you, John. Thanks.